welcome to the Drabblecast Halloween Special, Episode 419. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your special guest ghost, Cryptkeeper Norm. No relation. Every Halloween, we at the Drabblecast let Norm out of his cellar just for a night so he can go trick-or-treating or whatever the hell else. And we do a special spooktacular episode here without him. Norm hates giving up the reins and generally needs, well, a little shove out the door. Hey, let me in! Uh, Those aren't trick-or-treaters, for example. Just Norm trying to get back into the house. Hey, come on! He's cold, I think. He couldn't decide on a costume, so... Well, I I made him dress up as a guy who's going to get arrested and just threw him out there nude. Yeah, thanks for that. Why don't you go as a Kardashian, I said. Surely you have a plastic cup full of semen and a pair of fake eyelashes laying around. Why would I have a pair of fake eyelashes laying around? I don't I'm just trying to be helpful. How about going as a fatter version of yourself from last year? This is fun for you, isn't it? It's Halloween. I, I'm a skeleton. Of course it is. How about a slutty nurse? Eh, too cliche. Slutty Civil War nurse? What? Like a nurse from the Civil War, I I don't know. No. How about a storytelling skeleton? Eh, not scary enough. F*** you, sir. Intimacy? Whoa, too scary. Alright, you know what? I don't need this. Hey, wait, I'm, I'm naked. Big whoop. I don't even have skin. Oh, come on. Let me in. This is bullshit. No, no. You know what's bullshit? The fact that the song Monster Mash is actually just a song about a song called Monster Mash. You've never actually heard the Monster Mash. You probably never will. Now that's bullshit. Got a spooky looking zombie up in here. Yeah, monsters, they be mashing, they be mashing up in here. Zombie and a werewolf up in here. Yeah, monsters, they be mashing, they be mashing everywhere. You ain't gotta call me, you don't wanna. But when I'm a spooky ghost, I'm gonna haunt ya. You ain't gotta call me. Okay, maybe it's for the best. Ah, Drake? Drake did the mash. He did the monster mash. Well, right, yes, of course, that one. What other mashes are there? Come on, I'm freezing. Anyways, on to this week's stories. As your well, a scare, Drabblecast Trifecta Specials feature three different stories by three different authors, all based around some theme. Well, the Travelcast decided to do something a little different this year and brings you three stories, original stories, written by none other than the Travelcast editors themselves, past and present, all tied together in a shared story mythos centered around a Halloween graveyard, past, present, and future. We bring you the Lichgate Trifecta. First off, we have a defrightful tale set in Halloween present by former Travelcast editor of Yestergore, Matthew Bay, called They Went Into the Graveyard One by One. Currently a resident of Austin, Texas, Matthew Bay has a number of short stories in science fiction, horror, and fantasy anthologies. His writing runs the gamut of absurdly comic to dark and terrifying. 
He runs the sci-fi humor zine Space Squid, and his blog Zombie Lap Dance can be found on Revolution SF. Norm has described his stories as classic travelcast, going back to publications on the podcast such as Eggs back in episode 58 and Travelcast B-Sides hits. For those of you who donate $10 a month to support the podcast, the elves hate you and snuggle the dead in B-Sides episodes 8 and 13. Good stuff. Next, we have a short story set in Diagon Days by your very own host, chief editor, and, well, guy locked outside, Norm Sherman, called The Armadillo Man. And finally, we wrap things up with a story set down the old, lonesome highway of time a bit forward, called Macadam by writer and Drabblecast editor Samantha Henderson. Sam is a writer and poet whose work has appeared in Strange Horizons, Realms of Fantasy, Weird Tales, and many other publications online and print. You can find links to her short stories and podcasts, as well as interviews and places to buy her books at samanthahenderson.com. So take a load off those dusty boots, traveler. Without further ado, we bring you They Went Into the Graveyard One by One, The Armadillo Man, and Macadam by Matthew Bay, Norm Sherman, and Samantha Henderson. They Went Into the Graveyard one by one by Matthew Bay Stick <laughs> well howdy partner welcome to the Refurio County Halloween Fridorama and Haunted Cemetery Tour I'm Red Brangus and I'll be looking out for you on this self-guided tour we work real hard in these exhibits of Texas ghosts and monsters folks and this self-guided audio tour is the most terrifying yet this is the third year we put together a little shindig, and, <laughs> well, I tell you, these residents of Tivolis Cemetery are always happy to have you folks loving the place up, if you know what I mean. Thanks for downloading the Terror Tour app, folks. Your app fees and your generous donations go toward post-hurricane rebuilding efforts and pre-hurricane infrastructure hardening. Refurio County thanks you for your generosity and wishes to remind you that no matter how terrifying you may find the upcoming Haunted Cemetery Tour, Sheriff Jimbo Rivera and the trained paramedics at the Ostwell Volunteer Fire Department well, they're standing in the treehouse tent. Should, you know, something happen. We salute our Refurio County responders and everything they do to keep us safe in these uncertain times. 
when you're ready and feeling about as brave as you'll ever be, well, we'll go ahead and start the tour. Whatever happens, don't stray from the path, all right? No matter what you may see or hear in the other parts. Now, stand in the yellow square painted there on the shoulder of State Highway 35 and press that blood red button that says begin the terror on your app screen. You'll have 13 and a half seconds to review the liability waiver confirmed before the app automatically checks the box and moves you to the first station. We appreciate the implied excitement there behind your no doubt scrambled yet fully legally binding attempt at consent as you assume sole responsibility of your physical and mental well-being on this most spooktacular haunted tours. Alrighty then, folks. Now with all that silly city slicker mumbo-jumbo behind us, here we go. You are currently standing at the entrance to the historic Tivoli Municipal Cemetery. This cemetery has been in operation for over 200 years. They say the earliest grave at this site was dug for some old Anglo settler that died of armadillo contracted leprosy. Can you imagine? My skin! Where'd all my skin go? Yeah, times were sure different back then, huh? Nowadays, we say people die of armadillo-contracted Hansen's disease. Kids these days. Before you now, as I'm sure you cowpokes can see, stands a big old ornamental wrought iron arch, the entrance to Davoli Cemetery. This thing's called a lich gate, and it comes from the old English word lich, which means corpse. This is not the entrance used for day-to-day use, of course, but the ceremonial entrance used for, well, funereal processions and for welcoming the dead to their final resting place. Since tonight's such a special night, you folks will get to enter through the Lich Gate, open just this one night of the year. But don't worry, partner. (laughs) Why, any cultural taboos about doing this are merely superstition. Oh, here we go. Your first station in terror are the graves of Annabelle Marsh and Rosalie Marquez. Annabelle's family have been maintaining her grave by removing all grass and vegetation, you see. A tradition known as scraping. It's believed this cultural practice came to Texas along with our state's first visitors from West Africa. Well, how about that? Next to Annabelle lies young, sweet Rosalie, of course. Even decades after her death, Rosalie's grave is festooned with flowers and toys, relics of her young life. Legend has it, both these young ladies died on July 14th, 1963, at Camp Lula Sam's in Brownsville, when the camp counselor suddenly up and decided to murder and mutilate all the campers under his charge without warning. It's said that although their remains lie at rest here in Tivoli Cemetery, their souls remain with all the other campers that died that night, trapped inside row upon row of creepy porcelain dolls resting on the shelf of a crumbled old shack somewhere deep in the abandoned woods where the forgotten grounds of Camp Lulu Mulder. Spooky. 
right, folks, go ahead and follow the prompts on your app now, if you will, to the next station in the haunted tour. This next exhibit on your tour of horror is the aptly named Dead Man's Hole. At your feet you'll find that the ground falls away into a rocky bowl, and in the center of that depression you'll see a hole in the rock, barely as wide as a grown man's shoulders. Try throwing a coin into it if you like. Hmm, yeah, that's what they all think. After the outbreak of the war and northern aggression in 1861, the men of Refurio County searched all around for local Union sympathizers who, well, <laughs> didn't share our Texan values, you might say, before proceeding to feed their bodies right into this very hole at your feet. Like most caves in the area, Dead Man's Hole was formed by the slight dissolution of limestone from weakly acidic rainwater leaching through the dry Texan earth. A little geology lesson there for you. Alright folks, take a look at your phone now. You'll find that the Terror Tour app has activated the light on the back of your devices. Go ahead and shine that light on into the hole, why don't you? <laughs> Although your smartphone light is surely inadequate in so far as dispelling the deep well of Stygian darkness that is Dead Man's Hole, you could maybe see the faint reflection of the dull, staring eyes of long-suffering Union soldiers. Those eyes blame you, partner, declaring you complicit in all the sins baked deep in this very land. Sorry, I don't make the rules, huh? <laughs> But those dead eyes, they'll never forgive you for benefiting as you do from all the oil buried beneath the cursed Texan earth, whilst also forgetting the atrocities committed here. I mean, them's the breaks, partner. Now you want to hush down, folks, as you enter the next tent. The woman here with the long black hair and that long white dress facing off in the corner, she's known as La Llorona. Long ago, this tragic figure married a fickle nobleman who wouldn't pay her enough mind, you see. And so to teach him a lesson, she drowned their children and herself in the nearby San Antonio. For your safety, folks, La Loriona stands off on the other side of the river so you can't see her face. Her expression is so contorted by the horror of her crimes that should you ever look upon her countenance, it would tear the very screaming soul from your body. So for your own, you know, well-being and whatnot, please refrain from speaking or drawing La Loriona's attention to your way. Whoops. <laughs> She's... Well, she's okay. She's looking this way. All right, folks. All right, folks. Sorry, I should have been whispering. That, that's on me. Uh, let's just let's just move along, shall we? Oh fuck! All right, all right. Now, now you're at the station for La Mano Pachona or the Hairy Hand. Inside the box on that very table, folks, we have contained the disembodied hand. For your convenience, you see. I mean, it might be a bit wriggly, that one. Can you hear it tapping? 
why before winding up here, my very own niece Barbara said she'd seen that hand one lonesome October night years ago. She was camping at Oyster Lake, you see, with her bow, as she tells it, and suddenly she found herself stirred from sleep in the dark just before dawn to the faint sound of scratching at the outside fabric of the tent. By the light of the moon, she could see the silhouetted shadow of that hand outside as it slowly unzipped the main entrance, and she could even feel the hand's malevolent intention as she sat horrified from the inside. It was an evil, uncontrollable ambition to squeeze the very life from her throat, and she shook her boyfriend, but he slept soundlessly beside her. Do you hear the tapping? she exclaimed. The horrible tapping and scratching. Well, by golly, he didn't. But folks still say if you listen hard, you can hear La Mano Pachona on Lonesome Texas Nights. You can hear it, right? Uh, me neither. Well, hot dog, I sure hope it hasn't... I hope it hasn't got out the box. Well, now I know you heard that one, folks. That would be La Lechuza, which is the Spanish word for Little Owl. But it's also the name of a local legendary witch that sometimes appears in the form of an owl. But let me tell you, folks... This owl's far from a little feller. In the darkness of cemeteries just like this one, beneath the gauzy black sky Texas nights just like tonight, you can sometimes hear the faint rustle of her feathers. I remember once back in 84, I was driving my Pontiac station wagon down Highway 35 at night when lo and behold I saw a flurry of sudden feathers. As the inadequate glow of my headlights split the darkness in front of me, the owl overtook my car, pulling abreast of the driver's side window. It seemed so much larger than any bird I'd ever seen, and as I tore my gaze from the 75-mile-per-hour blur of the highway, it turned its hideous head towards me, and I swear to you on my mama's grave that what I saw before me was the withered face of an old woman, staring back, beaked mouth open, and letting forth the most nightmarish of screams. Well, I'm not sure what happened after that. I remember coming to on the side of the highway, feeling groggy, but I tell you what, that memory haunts me to this very day. Now, to close things out, folks, bear with me a second, for this here's a yarn worth spinning, as it sums up much in regards to Texas tall tales. A long while back, a local girl from my high school, pretty girl, not the kind set to fibbing or rumor stirring, well, she set out to deliberately find La Vaca Phantasma, the phantom cow South Texas. Now I know what you're thinking. Phantom cow? That's ridiculous. But tell me, friend, how often does ridiculous stop a thing from happening? Sure enough, round midnight, she saw a glimmer of something just off the road in her headlights and stopped her car. 
and she stepped off the asphalt, meticulously maintained, might I add, by the Refurio County Highway Department, and onto the wet soil which blends into a trackless tidal marsh of alligators and crabs, and she shined the inadequate light of her flashlight up ahead of her. And lo and behold, she saw something standing there, some hunched shape, massive and amorphous, which she somehow knew been waiting there for a very long time. Waiting in the parched primordial soil since long before the Anglos or Spaniards, long before the Comanche even, waiting there staring throughout the ages. And then she ran back to her car, and she went home and never drove on that road again, like any sensible pretty girl would do. You see, folks, there's something about this land and the critters that walk it, the storms that shape the rock, the holes and hills that whisper and call, the worn down graves and empty old towns that don't want to be forgotten. Not fully. But they ain't too keen on being remembered either. Don't matter if they're cows, or owls, or dillos, or drowned and strangled children. Come and, come and see the sides, folks. Come and see the sides. Huh, woo-wee. Sorry, I, I got a little lost there for a minute. But don't we all now and then? Anyways, folks, thank you for participating in the Refurio County Frado-Rama and donating to the Hurricane Relief Fund at the lockbox. That lockbox will be right up there past the Lich Gate on your way out, and you'll be back at State Road, uh, whatever, 35, I think it was, where everything just makes more sense. It's been a pleasure being your guide. Your app should turn off as you reach the salt marsh, and do remember to tell a friend about us, you hear? All right, folks. Now, I'm, I'm not seeing all those apps turn off. <laughs> now, not to be a greedy prickler or nothing, but our, our little operation here only got so much bandwidth to spread around at once, and there's no doubt another tour group waiting to get on up in the Fratorama, so go ahead and make your way out the premises. If you don't mind too much, just keep on walking, lest the gators and the crabs eat your flesh and pick your bones. What seems to be the problem, folks? Can't you folks see over the tall grass? Can't you see the lights of the distant refineries pushing smokestacks off into the moon against the black sky? Where'd you folks make off to anyways? Can't you see the Lich Gate? Hello? Hello? Well, well, hello? Hey, I thought I'd done told you folks to not stray too far off the path. Oh, well, I guess that's just how it goes sometimes in these parts. Nice to have some company for once, though. Say, how you folks feel about giving tours? The Armadillo Man by Norm Sherman Camp Lula Sams, Brownsville, 1963. Neat arch, 
said 13-year-old Annabelle Marsh, her tone halfway serious for the first time this outing. The Texas woods buzzed all around the girls of Troop 45 as they made their way up the winding path to the top of the hill. That is pretty neat, huh? Counselor Hutton said, running his hand along the massive wrought iron framed arch marking the entrance to Camp Lula. I don't remember ever seeing it here, actually. Guess it's been longer than I thought since we took a group of you young ladies here. Are we lost? whined Rosalie Marquez, slapping at an insect on her neck. Not a chance, young lady. Look up ahead. Those are your cabins. Now why don't you scouts get your things together and follow Cadet Tracy to your bunks? You've had a long hike today. I think you've earned a special treat. S'mores? Twelve-year-old Samantha Cheney piped up. Even better, said Counselor Hutton. S'mores and a spooky story. Now hurry on back, girls. I'll get the fire ready and everything set up. The girls gradually situated themselves in their rooms with minimal arguing in regards to bunk arrangements as the teenage counselor-in-training Cadet Tracy excitedly palmed a spot on her vest where her final leadership badge would soon be pinned at the end of this trip. As the night closed in around the now lively camp, the girls filed out of their cabins and skipped down the hill to where Counselor Hutton had gotten an adequate fire going at the center of a large, flat clearing. One by one, the campers sat themselves down on various stumps lined loosely around the campfire in the shape of a semicircle. Once they'd all arrived and gotten situated, marshmallows glowing on the ends of long sticks, Counselor Hutton raised his hand to silence their excited giggling and chattering. So, who here's heard the legend of the armadillo man? he asked. The what man? squawked Annabelle Marsh. Armadillo? Hey, that sounds silly. I thought this was supposed to be a spooky story, quipped Linda Jessup, her face already smeared with melted chocolate. Oh, it's plenty spooky, young lady, replied Counselor Hutton. The Lonely Lost Leper, some people call him. Lonely Lost Leopard, Rosalie piped up, laughing. No, not leopard, silly. Leper. Although both of those would have been strange enough things to encounter in these parts back when the story took place. You see, a long time ago, over a hundred years ago in fact, all of this land was owned by Mexico. But then Mexico lost a war with President Zachary Taylor's army, and they had to retreat, and before long, groups of brave new settlers began to move into the area and call it home. One brave man named Henry Francis Fisher made his way to the Brownsville area before anybody else, and he set up a ranch right here in these hills, and there he and his family began to work the land. Can you imagine, girls, all the excitement they must have felt, getting to know all the local Indian tribes, learning all the different ways to live in this strange new land? They were true pioneers, and before you knew it, other families were moving into the area, and Mr. Fisher and his family, well, they didn't feel so alone anymore. They felt safe, part of a community, and that's important when you're surrounded by so much emptiness all day, so much darkness all night. 
Well, one night, Mr. Henry Francis Fisher, he was taking a walk, and he came across the most peculiar of creatures. An armadillo, Samantha Cheney called out, followed by a swirl of giggles from the other girls. Cadet Tracy hushed them. That's right, Samantha. But can you imagine the curiosity that that strange new creature must have sparked in Mr. Fisher? Why, he'd never seen an armadillo before, much less one that was glowing a faint luminescent blue. A blue armadillo? Multiple girls laughed. That's what the legend says. Now, whether it was some trick of the Texas moon under the gauzy black sky or something else that we can't explain entirely, we don't know. But to Mr. Fisher, this armadillo glowed in a way that it shouldn't have. And so it got into Mr. Fisher's head to do something that maybe he shouldn't have. The counselor looked Annabelle Marsh straight in the eyes and smiled. And that was to stop right there on the trail and try and catch it. The girls giggled and rolled their eyes. What? Haven't you girls ever seen something that you couldn't quite believe was real? Well, then there's only one way to know for sure that the thing's real, or maybe if you're going a little loco, isn't that right? You've got to reach out and touch it, clasp it tightly in your grasp until that thing well, it proves to you it's real. It's the curiosity, you see. You almost can't help yourself, like your hand has a mind of its own. And so that's exactly what Mr. Henry Francis Fisher did. He reached out and caught that glowing armadillo up into his palm. Pausing for effect, Counselor Hutton reached out and plucked a charred marshmallow from the end of his stick, smearing it between two graham crackers resting on a napkin atop his knee. Then what happened, Counselor Hutton? asked Annabel Marsh eagerly, fully enwrapped. Well, nothing at first. He let the little critter go, of course, and then he went home. And he only told his wife, Clara, and a few others in town about the whole weird thing. It took a few days, you see, for the rotting disease to begin. The girls fell silent. One dreadful morning, Mr. Fisher looked down at his hand and saw that it had begun to glow blue as well, and that the flesh on it had begun to prickle up into blistering boils that oozed pus and peeled away, and even though he tried to hide it, it wasn't long before the other townsfolk found out and started to become scared. They'd seen this condition before, you see, back in the old country. It was a disease called leprosy, highly contagious, and those that carried it were said to be doomed to a ghastly fate where they would slowly waste away, caught forever in between life and death. There was no cure, you see, and the only thing for them to do was to cast Mr. Fisher outside the town border to wander the wilderness alone. And so that's what they did as much as it pained them to do so. The girls looked at each other, not sure what to make of this sudden, darker turn in the story. All around them, the only sounds that could be heard were the buzzing insects of the night and the wind blowing through the trees. 
Well, the days turned into weeks, and the weeks turned into months, and Henry Francis Fisher walked alone in the desert under the hot sun, and between the hills under the pale moon, through strange barren places and long-forgotten towns. Even the Comanche people left him alone. And true enough, he eventually began to feel very much like something caught between the living and dead. And all the while as he wandered, his hand glowed blue, just like that armadillo, and it ached and glistened with endless open sores under the bright stars at night. But worst of all, worst of all children was the loneliness he felt, the longing to be together once again with his community, to see his family again, and in particular, his youngest daughter Emily, who was right around your ages. And then finally one night, that longing became too much. And despite trying his hardest to fight the urges inside him, he eventually found himself standing outside the walls of his very cabin, peering down through the window into young Emily's room, watching her sleep. How he wanted to touch her once again. Why she hardly even looked real in the light of the window. More like one of the many porcelain dolls she collected, kept lined up along her shelves. But he knew that he mustn't touch her, because doing so would surely cause her to become a leper as well, and he would never wish such a fate on another person. But the urge, children, the urge, the compulsion to touch that porcelain skin of hers one last time, to feel its warmth, to know it was real. It was an overwhelming thing that he felt inside him, greater than any temptation he'd ever known. Quietly, he slipped inside her room through the window, and then ever so slowly, he began to reach out with his sickly glowing hand towards her smooth face, but just before his oozing, trembling fingers could stroke her precious soft cheek, he drew it back quickly and cursed, removed a hand axe suddenly from his belt, and without giving it another thought, he threw his infected glowing hand against the wall, and in one quick, bloody swoop chopped it off at the wrist, crumbling instantly from the pain atop poor, sleeping Emily in her bed. The girl sat frozen, possessed by the story. What happened next? One of them asked. Well, Emily shrieked and thrashed, as did her howling, senseless father, and in the brief moments that followed, None can truly say what happened. Yet none doubted later what Mr. Fisher's wife, Clara, testified at having seen when she finally burst into that room, her husband's rifle at the ready. Henry Francis Fisher, the lonely lost leper, strangling his very own. Counselor Hutton grew suddenly still. He was... He was strangling his own daughter, Counselor Hutton? asked Linda Jessup. Why? whimpered little Rosalie Marquez, stifling back tears. How? interjected Samantha Cheney, with morbid fascination. You said he cut off his hand. 
Cadet Tracy silenced the girls, but seemed equally engrossed and curious to know the answers. It wasn't real, Counselor Hutton muttered to himself, while something shifted in his eyes. That's what Clara must have thought, staring at her husband there in the darkness before pulling that trigger. It wasn't real, little Emily must have thought to herself as the final traces of life left her eyes. It wasn't real, the maddened man Fisher must have told himself as he stared at the ghastly putrefied hand still attached to his wrist, clenched ever so tightly around the throat of his lifeless daughter, while something else with five digits scratched and thrashed at the floor by his feet before eventually laying still. It wasn't real. The girls stared at him. It wasn't real. The voices must have said, the voices from inside, inside the wrought iron arch that shouldn't have been there. None of this was real. Counselor Hutton, whispered Cadet Tracy, reluctantly breaking the silence. Counselor Hutton stared blankly into the fire. The index finger of his right hand began tapping gently and methodically against his knee. Tap, tap. Great storms in the desert, he muttered, leeching away. Leech, leech. Several of the girls began to grow visibly anxious. This was not simply their camp counselor lost deep in his story or taking things too far. This was something new, something they'd never before encountered, and as such it became something they felt compelled not to believe. Do you feel it, children? Do you? The strange gravity of this place, of stories like ours. Do you hear them whisper, the voices, the creatures, spirits and machines humming faintly in the night? <laughs> they guide us off the path, don't they, just for a moment, before leading us back home in the end. Noticing the unmistakable look of bewilderment in Cadet Tracy's eyes, several of the campers rose from their seats and backed away towards the cabins up the hill. The remaining girls beside her began shrieking with horror as Counselor Hutton started pacing with eerie resolve towards the terrified teenage counselor in training, but for all at once they scattered off in various directions of imagined safety in the night. Take care, children. A voice called out from the darkness that filled Counselor Hutton's mouth. He stood over the petrified, shaking form of Cadet Tracy. She would be the first to be led home that night. But there would be more. For this is no place to wander. Lonely. Adam by Samantha Henderson. The East Texas asphalt is surprisingly intact, 
and the Corolla's retreads make a crisp sound as they bite along the hard tar surface. And at first, I have a faint hope that the job will be an in-and-out, easy-peasy one. But as we approach the Refurio zone, particulate lumen like brown fog, it devolves into loose rocks with shrubs poking out the tarmac, or asphalt, or whatever the hell it's called. Those old roads that used to be made out of crushed rock on dirt, that ancient shit, Max something, back when they were just learning to make roads. Guards with full-body hazmat suits and nightmare, goggle-eyed masks, disruptors slung over their backs, step out of the gloom and motion us to stop. Then, seeing the Lich Gate seal on the side of our car, they shake their monster heads and wave us past, on down that desolate road. Company store and company state, and some bad luck and poor decisions mean Polly and me are thralled to Lichgate Enterprises. More bad luck, me being a little sassy, and Paul being incautious about where he sticks his junk means we're stuck on this shitheel assignment, mapping active settlements in the Refurio, where the warm gulf pushed all the fallout from Comanche Peak and Arkansas Prime meltdowns low these many years ago. The seals on our old 2051 Corolla are thick with duct tape and false hope, and we slip our breathers into each nostril, snorting the stale air in like snuff. Assholes, says Polly, staring over his shoulder at the cluster of guards. I decide not to ask what his beef is, trying to maintain a decent speed over the humps of lifted, corroded road. He's tapping his mobile screen, comparing old maps to new reality. There's supposed to be a town two miles ahead on the right, he says. Eighteen living as of five years ago, they were supposedly rebuilding some sort of infrastructure. I keep an eye peeled on the coast to a near stop on the tender edge of the road. Some crumbled walls, a half-built water tower. That's all that's left. There's nothing living here. Polly sighs and taps the screen, entering in data. Well, at first we take the little slab-sided general store for your standard run-of-the-mill generic ruin, rising a little higher than the humps that lie around it like sleeping cattle. And then we see it's tidy and trim, and a neon sign glows ice white along the roof line. Open 24 hours, camping supplies, snacks, soda, cold water. And we glance at each other. I'm driving, so I call it, pulling into a parking spot with the phantom of a border flaking off into the asphalt. I wish I could remember what they were called, those old, crushed, rock-on-dirt ancient roads. The inside of the store is a cool miracle, but dim, with only a few white bulbs overhead, hiss a blue neon over an old cooler. Polly yips joyfully and gathers armfuls of snacks and odd-colored packages, contraband on Lichgate's turf. 
I glance around the neat stacks of canned goods, coiled ropes, batteries, breath mints, wonder why no one else has taken refuge here. There's a set of shelves ten feet high beneath the kerosene lamps, lined with dolls. Forty or fifty at least, I'd say, cheek by porcelain cheek, staring at me with these gleaming glass eyes. They have the same lace dresses on, the same black shoes on their dangling feet, but they're not identical. The subtle painted features on each face varies. The hair, well, that can't be human, can it? It's all glossy, dark, but one catches some red highlights, another blue. I wonder who in the world thought so many dolls in the midst of all this desolation was a good investment as I turn away and draw a breath and I catch the gaze of the girl behind the counter staring at me dispassionately. When Polly dumps his sugary trove on the counter, she barely glances down before turning back at me. She's dressed in white, with a dress that clings to her as if it were wet, and her long black locks have this sheen about them of creek water. Polly thrusts a handful of Lichgate script at her and chortles when she takes it with demure. I walk backwards to the door. I don't want to turn my back on her for some reason. In the blue-tinged light, I see the curled ends of her hair lift and float around her head, and I glance quickly at the ceiling, expecting to see the underside of some river surface. But she's gone from behind the counter, and without thinking, I turn tail and run, slipping just past Polly and earning a curse when I knock aside one of his garish snacks. I slip into the passenger seat and slick the duct tape back in place. It's his turn to drive now. Besides the girl, we see nothing living, not even an armadillo, and they're thick on the ground throughout Louisiana and the Panhandle. Must be a tower somewhere with a little juice left, I tell him, thumbing the cracked screen in my iPhone. Catching a geolocation, some signals from those old ghost apps. A voice sounding tinny with one of those old movie cowboy accents pops up. Maintaining her grave by removing all grass and. The signal sputters out. The only thing even half alive here seems to be the road, still remembering something. It's like a safety valve or a gas flare. All that friction, all that rubber pounding into it every day, back when folks lived and drove and joyed and despaired. All that emotion, all those imagined conversations, all that talk radio, all that loud and tuneless singing. It had to go somewhere, didn't it? The Corolla lurches as it hits a depression in the earth. I glance at Polly. His hands are gripped wide around the steering wheel. His face is set in a horrible grin as if possessed. The motor whines under us as he speeds up. The desolation around us is suddenly whipping by too fast. I want to tell him to slow down, but it's too late now, isn't it? Somehow it feels too late. Like we're part of the landscape now, part of this story. 
luminescent shapes off grazing in the distance, but even closer, right beside us, bright blue balls trundling along in the ditches. I'd guess they were balls of lightning if they didn't spot pairs of pointy ears. Armadillos. I wonder if Polly sees them too, but I'm too afraid to ask. My mobile cracks to life again. Another tinny voice. The official small mammal of Texas. Daspucis novem tucus or something. The armadillo possesses many remarkable traits, some of which parallel and attribute that distinguished of a true Texan, such as a deep respect for the land and his ability to change, adapt with a fierce and undying... A sign flashes past on the side of the road. Tivoli something. A yellow square, jaundiced and faded, long ago painted on the surface of that road. Sorts. One in five armadillos is infected with- Hot damn, something's- something's- Says Polly as the road rises over an old overpass. The highway is far below us now, and here and there I see occasional blue flashes in the distance. We lurch into the guardrail, but it won't stop us at the speed that we're going. Still, we crash into it with a bone-jerking lurch and careen off the steel into a fan of sparks. Suddenly, the edge of the asphalt's crumbling away beneath us. God damn, I wish I could remember what that old, crushed, rock-on-dirt road was called. Well, I don't know, Bill, but these strange and enigmatic creatures, it might just be the end of us. There's only one way out of this. I reach over in between Polly's arms, vibrating and tendon locked from fighting the road. I take a firm grip on the lower left quadrant of the steering wheel and jerk up sideways and hard, too hard. And we go over the side of the overpass. And the car starts that long, slow flip, turning upside down, ready to slam our skulls against the asphalt 50 feet below. And then, then it suddenly comes to me. The word, it's macadam. Rocks pulverized into a crust of road. And I laugh. And Polly laughs too. As we go over and over and out and out. All the way down. And that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. Help me. Oh, someone's getting testy. All right, let's go to our 100 character story winner this week. From our forums, Frankie. Here it goes. Appearances are deceptive as it is. But on Halloween, everything is to be taken with a pinch of salt. Or rather... A circle. 100 character stories, we call them Twabbles. Follow the Drabblecast on social media on Facebook and Twitter at the Drabblecast to get those early. And for other good stuff. 
All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember that Travelcast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution. Oh, shit. You know this stuff. I'm just going to skip through it, okay? Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week. The one, the only, literally the, the one and the only person named Bo Kaya. Bo Kaya. He's the Travelcast art director. He does a great job. Check out his work at bokaya.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Sandro Dell, Samantha Henderson, Bo Kaya, Tom Baker, Adam Pratt, Melissa Harvey. A briefcase full of bones buried in concrete underneath an old closed eye op. Zimmerman Bledsoe and yours truly, Norm Sher- Cryptkeeper Norm. Reminding you, those eyes blame you, partner. Sorry, I don't make the rules. Thank you.